Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Joining me as always on Thursdays, Thursday morning, as breaking news happens, my good friend Dwayne, Generalissimo Patterson of the Hugh Hewitt Show, Master of the Universe, H-U-G-H-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.com, the troll-free web surfing experience for Hugh Hewitt fans and listeners. I'm a member. You should be a member by now. Dwayne, Master of the Universe, welcome back. My pleasure. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me back. Uh, good to be back on the uh, the podcast that is soon to surpass Joe Rogan on the Spotify's. Well, I, I would think so, but it might just be an artifact of inflation uh, when, yeah. <laughs> when I do. <laughs> I'll do respect to Joe Rogan. I, I, it would almost have to be inflation. Uh, <laughs> almost so, would have to be. Almost would have to be. And inflation is the uh, the big story this morning. You know, we always talk about. We do your show on Wednesday nights, and people who belong there can can catch us doing the the, the live stuff there. But um, we always say, "Well, what are we going to talk about in the morning?" And I always say, "Well, you know, God will provide." <laughs> he he gave us the seventy show, Dwayne. We got the uh, consumer price index inflation rate seven point five percent. Seven point five percent, which is roughly translated to. Joe Manchin will never go for the Build Back Better bill now. Yeah. Ever. You know, it just I mean, as yeah, it's just as we dead, were dead, starting dead, this. Dead. Yeah. Just as we were starting this, right? I mean, I'm I'm writing this up, and that's the one thing I said is that you know, massive spending is now firmly off the table. Uh, we're now looking at probably the Federal Reserve having to step in with a rate hike like, you know, fifty basis points here. Half uh, a point. It's got it's gotta be half a point. It's gotta be half a point. Uh, the markets are now sort of pricing that in. Um, CNBC actually has a, a pretty good snap report on this as well. I just put a snap report up at uh, Hot Air, which it, you know, by the time the podcast comes up, will have been up for a while. Uh, so we'll see more of we'll see more of how this settles out during the day. Obviously, we'll be covering. But some we've of that, been on but... this sugar high. We've we've talked about this. Yep. You know, all this all this you know money that we've just been printing left, right, and sideways and throwing out there and, and pumping into the economy. The Fed is going to have to start sucking some of that money back out and, and tightening up money supply, and people aren't going to like it. Now, it's necessary medicine. We have to do it, but boy, people aren't going to like it very much. They they thought, you know, we, we were told by the Fed that, um, you know, we didn't, we, we didn't have to worry about this. You know, um, uh, 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 what, what's his name? Krugman, Paul Krugman from the New York Times. He he was saying we didn't have to worry about this. All those people that thought we had to be, you know, responsible for for money supply, it's an it's an endless money tree. We don't have to worry about that. That's the new economics. We 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 can just do this forever because there's no there's there's no downside to it. Well, we're seeing what the downside is, aren't we? Uh, we are indeed seeing what the downside is on this. And you're going to hear a lot about core inflation not being as bad. Core inflation is still at 6% annualized. And what core inflation does, just to remind people, core inflation is inflation that doesn't include food and energy. Now, I've always gotten- Tell me an American citizen in this country that the, the two things that they use the most right. are food and energy. The reason why they do this, and I, I'm just going to go ahead and, and give the reason why this is it, it, this is a consistent measure. They've done this for decades. The reason why they break that out is because food and energy prices are more volatile. And so it introduces more uh, uncertainty into the metric. But it's not that much uncertainty. And what That's that, like Ford Theater saying, 
is if you exclude the Derringer and the balcony, it was an uneventful play. Right. It was a, it, the critics loved the play, except for the part where the guy jumped on the stage and yelled, Six Semper Tyrannus as the president died in the middle of it. Right. Uh, core inflation ignores the part of inflation that consumers feel on an everyday basis. Food and energy, you feel it on an everyday basis. There's no way to avoid it's that. It's a meaningless stat. It's right. a meaningless stat. So if you are looking at food and energy, which went up 0.9% in the month of January, that would be um, about a 10% inflation rate, right? I mean, uh, excuse me, it would be higher, higher than that. It'd be a yeah, 10.8%, almost 11%. Uh, now, annualized inflation rate on food and energy prices. surprises, honestly, this surprises no one. No. What was the PPI number last month? Uh, well, I forget what the specific number was, but that was also a 40-year high. Yeah. And and we said, it. you and I were talking about it at the time, said PPI it, is, a, is, a, is a leading indicator. It means that the, the inflation is going to just get worse next. It <laughs> means that the CPI, by definition, is a lagging indicator. Yeah. What we're seeing today is what we saw in the in the in the PPI price two months ago. Yep. Right. Right. So right. what what I'm here to tell I'm not you know, I'm not all happy giggles saying, boy, this is great. I'm here to bring you the really good news. What I'm telling you is wait till next month, oh, wait yeah. till April, because it ain't going to be. We're going to look back at seven point five as the good old days. Well, I don't know if we're going to look at it as the, as the good old days because I don't think these are the good old days. I think we're going to look at you know 2019 as the good old days. <laughs> Ed, we're at the the CPI number. We're going to 10 percent before yeah. before June, right? I mean, yeah, we are. Yeah, I mean, at this rate, yes. Unless the Fed steps in, they're going to meet next month. One has to wonder though whether or not they they might want to meet this they month. They can't. They're they're not. They can't wait that long. I right? I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think so. Uh, clearly, they're going to have to make some sort of intervention, though. I think how that many how many states start holding primaries in March? Well, Texas oh. does for one. I mean, our, our primaries the first week. A whole bunch do. Yeah. How many Democrats running for re-election want to look at this seven point five number and another one that's probably going to be even worse next month, and the Fed hasn't even taken a you know taken any action at all. And Biden is sitting here on his thumbs, not knowing what to do. Yeah. I mean, this is, it is clear that this administration exists in a sort of unreality on a whole bunch of different planes, right? Uh, on inflation, on on masking, which we're going to get to in a minute, in Afghanistan, in Ukraine. Crime. crime. Yeah. I mean, they, they're existing in this sort of enforced, willful, all of it. Yeah. Right. The, the southern border. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, I think you can, I think you can get away with doing that in one area, maybe immigration, because it doesn't, it doesn't show up at your doorstep every single day. It doesn't show up in your, on your cash register every single day, but, but you can't do it with all of them. You can't do it with all of them at the same and, time. No. And then come back and say, Hey, but at least, at least we've got peace in our time. I've got this paper that says we've got to deal with Iran. It, yeah. it, now it's a sucky deal. We don't like the deal. But, boy, it's the best deal we could do because it's all Trump's fault. I mean, add that to the mix. That's I mean, who's going to buy any of this? No, nobody. Now, to get back to a point that you brought up, because, I mean, you're you're ahead of me on this because this is where I wanted to go. 
there was uh, there's been some uh, talk that Chuck Schumer learned a lesson. You know, he's going to focus on <laughs> narrow, narrow uh, bipartisan efforts. At the same time, you're also hearing uh, and this was, I believe, in the Washington Post today. It was either Washington Post or Politico. I don't have it in front of me at the moment that said that they're coming back around to build back better. And they're trying to work with Joe Manchin on on what what he will support. I think we can say with reasonable certainty at this point in time, reconciliation's dead here. I mean, with one caveat, Joe Manchin apparently wants to use reconciliation to lower the deficit, to actually lower the deficit. <laughs> He's, he said yesterday that that's actually what reconciliation is for. It's getting your, it's getting your fiscal house in order. And if Democrats right. want to do something that will actually lower the deficit, He's willing to work on a reconciliation package, so it's okay. possible that we get reconciliation, but not build back better. It may be um, something completely different under reconciliation. Tell, tell, tell me what Bernie's going to do about that. Oh, Bernie's going to freak out. I mean, Bernie's Bernie being Bernie, he wants he wants it all. I mean, this is the same thing with you know the whole Melissa Childs. Excuse me, Michelle Childs. I keep calling her Melissa. I, I, my apologies to Judge Childs because I I make that mistake repeatedly. Michelle Childs, where where he's too afraid he's afraid that she's too corporate <laughs> for him and he's 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 basically saying you know uh, I, I, that he won't vote for her um even though she's the only the only suggestion on the short list that might get some republican votes and they might okay. need a couple republican votes to so, get the, so if we're talking in the next 30 to, to 45 days roughly remember Ben Ray Lujan, who we hope gets better from his right, throat. Right, of course, yeah. But Ben Ray Lujan's not there. There's only 49 Democrats. Right. Right? Right. So what measure are the Democrats going to do to react to the inflation that is going on that they are going to get enough support by themselves? Nothing. Nothing. Right? Nothing. They can't okay. do anything. Right. So the only thing they can do, Mitch McConnell could say, well, you know, We've got some ideas of what what needs to be done, and they could probably even get some Democrats on board to do to 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 do that as well. They could probably get Joe Manchin on board. They might even get a couple of vulnerable uh, Democrats to come up with some measures to to uh, fight inflation. Right? You know, yep. there there are things that they could do. Here's the problem with that: Is Chuck Schumer going to bring that bill up that a Republican uh, group would pass? Or is is he going to actually bring that up for a vote? No. Of course not. No, which because means, he can't. He can't cross Bernie Sanders. He can't cross Elizabeth Warren. Which means he hasn't learned his lesson. And, and honestly, I'm not sure you could get that through the House. I don't think you could get that through the House either. I think I think that the squad and Nancy Pelosi would keep something like that from going through the House. They would try to pork it up as much as possible with all. They try to lard it up with all the progressive spending, and it would die again in the Senate because Manchin is making it clear. By the way, it was Politico. I just want to. I just want to make sure that I get that in there. It was Politico that reported this um, in a <laughs> in a uh, piece that's titled "Democrat Social Spending Dreams Stuck in Winter Purgatory." Um, being a being a, a, a highly imperfect and yet um, enthusiastic Catholic, I think I can almost assuredly state that it's no longer in purgatory. <laughs> It's been purged. The, the purging has already the purging has already taken place. This is going nowhere. And and it wasn't and, and it wasn't an ascension from that point. 
Uh, no, it wasn't. Um, I think Oblivion is probably about the best, the <laughs> nicest way that you can put this. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, it, it, it's a good piece. I think Burgess Everett is, yeah, Burgess Everett wrote it. And, um, and Mansion is... This was before the CPI came out. You can imagine what Manchin's going to say about this now that the CPI's out. He's yeah, I know, I know say, exactly it. what Manchin's saying. Manchin's telling his colleagues, I told you so. Right? Right. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, this is going nowhere. The Fed is going to have to go somewhere with this. It's going to be unpleasant for the Biden administration because when they start dropping these rate hikes to try to uh, corral inflation, what it's going to do is it's going to arrest economic expansion at the same time. And that is no no es bueno for whoever is in the White House when the Fed has much, to do this. How much how much debt are we floating right now? What, 30 trillion? 30 trillion. Yeah. And, and 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 we pay interest on that debt, do we not? We, we do indeed. The interest the interest hit on this is going to be massive. Even with just a half a half a point uh basis hike, the interest hit on this is, oh, and by the way, Manchin just came out with a a new statement. Would you like me to read this statement to you, uh, Dwayne? Does, does does it start with fool, I told you so? It actually almost does word for word. <laughs> This is his statement. For months, I have been ringing the alarm bell about inflation. There you go. Once again, we are witnessing that the threat of inflation is real. This is not a corner of this nation where hardworking families are able to... There is not a corner of this nation where hardworking families are able to escape the noticeable impact of this inflation tax. Inflation taxes are draining the hard-earned wages of every American, and it's causing real and severe economic pain that can no longer be ignored. It's beyond time for the Federal Reserve to tackle this issue head-on, and Congress and the administration must proceed with caution before adding more fuel to an economy already on fire as inflation and our 30 trillion dollars in national debt continue a historic climb only in washington dc do people seem to think that spending trillions more of taxpayers money will cure our problems let alone inflation um I, i'd say that he's, he's right a soft, I, i'd say he's a soft no on bernie sanders's agenda what what what, what say you Dwayne? <laughs> <laughs> when he's right, he's right. Um, yeah. I just dis I disagree with him on a lot of policy stuff, but you know he's 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 pretty much got this down. Um, look, you know how much how much of our um, annual budget do we spend servicing the debt? Almost as much now as we spend on defense. Almost, it's, I think it's like six hundred billion a year. Okay. The last time, look, the net, that may have been a couple of years ago when we spend about $750 billion a year on defense. Okay. Now, let's flash forward to November after the Fed has done three different rate hikes. Yeah. Okay. It, you know, a half point, maybe a quarter point, maybe another quarter or another half on top of that. So, I'll so predict that it's going to be. I'll predict that it's going to be seventy-five basis points by the time that the election rolls around. However, they break it up. It may not be a full interest. It may not be a full, you know, one point zero, but zero point seven five. Okay. I'll, I'll predict zero point seven five. So, so, so we bump up the basis points uh, by by three or by three quarters, right? You know, uh, three quarters of a basis point. Yep. Um, in inflation, what's that going to do to what we're spending on servicing the debt now? It's going to make it skyrocket. It's going to make it skyrocket because we're paying next to nothing interest rate rise on that stuff. Um, and, and, and actually, it, everybody it, thought it was free money and it would be free money forever. Well, and I'll say this. I mean, I don't know what if interest rates, I believe, are locked in. 
on what we've already got in the national debt. The problem is, though, is that we're about to spend, what, a trillion or so um, it's not over and above. In. It's not locked in for, for, for a long term. Well, three a years, five of, years. Lot, yeah, I mean, because it keeps rolling over, short, too. It keeps right, rolling over. A lot of yeah. that is short to medium term. Yeah, you're right. Term. You're right. How, and how much, how much of that debt do we already have that is going to come due that we now have to roll forward? Yep. Well, anything that comes due, we're rolling all of it forward because we're still right, spending because, more money than we're taking in. Yeah. Right. Right. So we're in trouble. Yeah, we're in big trouble. All right. Want to move off of that. That's going to be the big story today. There's going to be all sorts of fallout from that. But another big story is that Democrat governors have decided that they're going to disconnect themselves from CDC and Biden administration guidance on masking. Run away! Run away! Run away! So, I, you know, I have a post that will go up a little bit later in the morning uh, based on a Washington Post um Based on a Washington Post thing, say, say, why are Democratic governors going rogue on the CDC over masks? And, and I'm just going to read you a little quote from from this because um, I, I have a I have an answer actually. It comes from Blazing Saddles. But before I get to the answer, um, this is um, this is the the lead for this Washington Post article. There is much clear from the emergent fractures among Democrats on mask mandates. They have no unified metric for limiting for lifting pandemic restrictions. Um, that's entirely backwards. The problem is that Democratic governors are belatedly realizing that the CDC doesn't have any unified metric for, for lifting pandemic restrictions. The CDC had a golden opportunity yesterday to roll them out, right? They, they called that press conference after five Democratic governors bailed on, the, on mask mandates. And instead of saying, okay, here's where we're going to, this is the metrics that we need to, you, know, you have to have caseloads under, you know, 2% of the population, you know, hospitalization uh, utilization has to be, you know, no more than 5% above normal, whatever it is, right? They right. didn't do that. They just said, well, we just need to keep going on the way it is until we decide that it looks normal. <laughs> so, what do you, so what do you think about that? What, 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 do you, what do you chalk that up to? I, I chalk it up to the fact that the voters have had enough. I mean, Phil Murphy damn near lost his election in New Jersey. No, I, out no, of nowhere. Well, no, I understand that. No, I mean, I mean, uh, why, why the, um, the the special COVID briefing yesterday that resulted in no policy change? What, what, what do you chalk that up to? Um, arrogance. I think that I honestly think that Fauci and Walensky and Biden thought that simply going out front and saying. <laughs> uh, you don't want to do that <laughs> because we, we we were not we're not ready to give you political cover on it. <laughs> I think they thought that that would still work. Um, possibly. Uh, we were talking to Jim Garrity this morning, our our mutual friend. Ah, uh, great, special. I, you know, so much how, fun. <laughs> how can you not love Jim Garrity? Um, and Jim uh, Jim and I were talking. He says, you know. We're going to read this down the road a few months, maybe a year or two, but we're going to read that somebody called this meeting because they were going to pull back the guidelines. And right before they held it, somebody in the White House said, you're going to do what? Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely and, agree with that, by the way. And, and, pulled, and pulled the plug on it and said, you're not changing a damn thing. So, so – Something weird happened there, and we're and, and we're going to learn about that down the road in in you know a, a political memoir or or something. We're we're going to learn what happened there, but 
my guess is they wanted to pull back and either a teacher's union jerked somebody's chain or somebody in the administration jerked their chain and said, no, we just, we just messaged this today. You're not going to go and undercut the message. We just, we just sent from, from, uh, from Jen Psaki, you know, there, there's, there's something weird going on there. Uh, yes. I think there's something very strange going on at the CDC. And what's strange is, is that they haven't yet figured out that their ability to dictate these things by, um, it's boy Cap pride wolf right? by, by capricious mean, fiat is has has expired and it, 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 i mean it, expired it, with red and purple states months ago right i mean and texas now it's expired with blue states and now it's expiring with blue states because they're tired uh, of it well not only that but if you take a look at the especially in the omicron wave if you take a look at the difference at, at, i mean we talked about this a little bit last it night it doesn't a look, make a damn bit of difference mask mandates made no difference in transmission spikes between mask mandated states and non mask mandated states and that is what that is what democratic governors are realizing and they're realizing that their voters are realizing um you know people move around in the country right they come to texas they come to florida they can get around it's very normal here people do wear masks but they're not mandated to do it so people right. can make the choice to do it if they want to do it or not they can still do that right um, even if you don't have a mandate in place, people can choose to wear masks and it's fine. Some people are, are going to be higher risk and probably feel more comfortable that way, but they don't mandate it here. And so things are open. Things are, things are flowing. You can go to restaurants, you can go to theaters, you can do whatever you want to do. Then they go back home <laughs> and they're locked in their apartments and they're locked in their houses. So I, these brave Sir Robin governors that are all over the blue States are now looking at the political, uh, you know, they're, they're sticking their finger up in the political wind and realizing, okay, well, this ain't working anymore. And so they're unwinding from the mass mandates. But as you and I talked about last night, they're doing it completely ass backwards. Yep. They're taking the mass mandates off of the adults who actually get the cases of Omicron and, and can develop the cases that are severe enough to be hospitalized and possibly die from it. The kids who have never been a factor in this, who have never, they've been a statistical anomaly. They've, right. they've been a blip in this whole thing from the, from the outset of, of the pandemic. Kids have never been a, a major factor in spreading it, getting it, getting uh, very sick from it. It happens, but it's, a, it's just a rarity. And yet all these blue state governors, well, we're going to keep, we're going to keep masks on the kids because well, we don't really have a good reason why, but we're but we're sure gonna. We're gonna keep the, the kids masked up. We're just gonna let all the adults out of the mask mandates because, well, they're the ones that vote and we, we can't piss them off. Um, if you're gonna do this according to the science, the data, the statistics that are out there, you take the masks off the kids first because they're not the problem. They never were the problem. They're not. They're not. They're not at significant risk, nor are they vectors for right. COVID nineteen. They haven't been since the beginning. And this is what I think the real problem is: is that the Democratic governors have been going along with the Biden administration for a year. I think if I think if Trump had won re-election, the Democratic governors would have bailed out of this. Of course, a Trump-led CDC probably would have bailed out of it too. But. Um, but they stuck with Biden because Biden's Biden's their guy. But the CDC has never provided a scientific basis for 
for masking in general, especially not masking in schools. There's no science behind ma masking right. children in schools. And so what happens is when, you know, when they're asked to provide an off-ramp for, you know, a science-based off-ramp for this, as Randy Weingarten demanded on Monday, there is no science-based off-ramp for it because there's no science-based... Um, for them being on the freeway to begin with. Right, exactly. They shouldn't have gotten on that freeway to start with. So there's no science-based off-ramp other than saying, we've looked at the science and this policy is bad. And they don't want to the do political that. political science, right. <laughs> they don't want to do that because of politics. Because it, they, if they if they feel if they admit that they've been in error all this time, that they're, they're going doomed, to lose credibility. They, yeah, then they're doomed in their credibility. And so their ego and their, and their credibility is getting in the way of... Uh, of it, it's sunken cost. We talked about that, right? Yeah, the sunk I mean, cost fallacy. Yeah, they can't. Right. They they can't just dump the loss because uh, they feel that they've invested too much into it. Well, I mean, at some point, the American people are going to look at the Democratic Party as a sunk cost. Yes, and that's that's exactly what's happening, and that's exactly why Democratic governors are are bailing out of this. Right. You know, we don't have a whole lot of time left. So, and I do want to get to what's coming up on the Hugh Hewitt show. I do want to ask, uh, promote something that I had actually not heard about. The Hugh Cruise is back on the seas. <laughs> yes. Tell us about that and how people can sign up. Two years ago. Uh, uh, yes, it was, it was, it was two years ago. We, Hugh was going to take a uh, riverboat cruise. You fly to Paris, you spend three nights in Paris, including one night you get to go tour Versailles and have a private dinner at Ooh. Versailles, which is, you know, sounds pretty cool to me. Then you get on the boat and you go cruising down the, the Seine and you work your way out to the, to the coast and you work your way to Normandy and back. And, you know, you get to you know, go through a couple locks and all that kind of stuff, working your way down the river. Uh, it's it's a riverboat size, so it's it's not a huge ocean liner. It's it's a more of a intimate type of setting, but it's you know it's it's really a, a high class high class operation here. So, AMA Waterways is the uh, is the actual carrier. Well, it got canceled in 2020. It got rescheduled for 2021, and then well, uh, Delta happened, and yep. yeah, uh, we didn't do the 2021, so it got rolled over to 22. Now the the, the point to this is in 2020, it was an election year. Well, you know, Hughes done these cruises every year. Right. Typically, the way the cruises go is it's Hughes Cruise. He goes on it. Now, I have done a couple of cruises for listeners on my own. You, of course, haven't yeah. gone on one of those. Up those it was a lot. Of, it was a blast. We had a great time. Just, it was just more fun than a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, this cruise, because it was going to originally be in 2020, uh, our magnificent um, czar at uh, the, the radio network, Phil Boyce, said, you can't be off the air for two weeks. Okay. And Hugh said, well, then I'm just not going to do a cruise this year then. Well, no, we need the money. You got to do the cruise. We want the revenue. <laughs> okay. Well, that's fine. But you can't have it both ways. Either if you want me to broadcast from the boat, which I guess technically we can try to do. It's tough, I'm, but you can, I, you, you might be able to make it work. He yeah. says, if, if we're going to try and make that work, I'm going to pull Dwayne along. And Phil, of course, said, but that costs so much money. I don't want to send Dwayne along. And Hughes says, okay, then I'm not going on the cruise. But we need the money from the cruise. Well, then I'm bringing Dwayne. But I don't want to send. 
So we had this round and round for a while, and then finally it just got decided, okay, fine, Dwayne can go. What, he's bringing his wife, too. Fine. Okay. So this was going to be the first cruise in the 21-year history of the show where both of us got to go on a cruise together, which I think is grand. It's going to be a lot of fun, you know? Yep. And um, so that didn't happen because of the COVIDs. 21 didn't happen because of the COVIDs. Now it's 2022. I'm still going. Why? I don't know, but I'm going. Um, so because the two of us are gone and I've got to rely on a piece of gear that has to rely on the ship's Wi-Fi and as a backup, a an EU cell stick tower <laughs> with a hopefully a a sim card that i buy in a store in paris that will hopefully work that should allow us to broadcast and hook up with the studio here if for some reason oh like any reason you could possibly think of that the technology may not work or blink out here and there ed morrissey is going to be standing by and basically co-hosting all day and when we drop out the inevitable dropout Ed will make sure we don't have dead air. Right. Or at least that's the plan. That's the plan. Uh, and I think it should work pretty well. On um, the days on the days when we are not able to broadcast, and there are, like the day we're flying over, uh, there's, there is a day where we've actually got to board the, uh, uh, no, there's, there, there's one day when we're actually doing an enormity uh, a tour or something where the, the time of day and all that stuff just doesn't work. Those days where we know we can't broadcast, Kurt Schlichter's going to fill in and guest host because he'll just come in and break the furniture, and that's fine. I don't, you know, I'll I'll just come back and expense out new furniture when I get back. But Ed is the perfect guest host for bad tech days, and the reason why, <laughs> the reason why is because when we did debates, when Hugh did debates in the 2020 presidential cycle. We would bring Ed on by Zoom as a co-host. You know, he, he would come on with us. And, you know, we would go to a commercial break and he would say, I got to go do NBC. And he would just take his headphones off and go do NBC as we're coming back from a break. And Ed just instantly filled in and took the next segment over as though it was planned. It was like Morning Joe Hewitt. It was like Morning Hugh, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> It was and a lot Ed of fun, Mo too. And, and Ed Morrissey was playing the role of Willie Geist. Well, that's what I like to do. I like to be Willie Geist. <laughs> so since we've kind of got that shtick down, I figured every day that we're supposed to broadcast, Ed will sit in and fill in with you until, of course, we disappear, in which case you'll be listening to Ed. Well, that's coming up. You can go to HughHewitt.com, by the way, to find out more about the Hugh Cruise. I'm assuming the tickets are still available. I think there may be a room or two left just because I don't know if everybody rolled over. There may be, you know, who knows? Right. HughCruise.com Hugh is where you can go oh, there you and go. get information. HughCruise.com. HughCruise.com. And I'll have that up in the pod, uh, in the show post for the podcast Uh when, when we do that later uh, this afternoon, um, Dwayne can send me an email to remind me of that. Um, just really quickly, what's yeah. on Hugh's show tonight? Uh, or, 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 sorry, tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning. Yeah, because <laughs> this morning is actually tonight right. where I'm at uh, or whatever. Anyway, no, tomorrow. 
Uh, Larry Arn's going to be on uh, from Hillsdale College. And it's not, you know, we're not doing Shakespeare. We're not doing one of the great books. Larry Arn is spearheading a movement of creating um, charter school and, and, and private academies all over this country in grade schools that are being stocked now full of kids and parents that are disaffected from not just the mass mandates and all that nonsense, but what CRT is doing in schools. Um, there, is, there is an entire educational uh, reformatting going on. And Hillsdale College is right at the center of it. It's not just collegiate level. This is training academies getting the next generation through school and ready to learn the important stuff at Hillsdale. And um, it's a fascinating hour. We taped it last week. We're going to play it tomorrow. Um, but it's, 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 a, it's a, a look at education that you, you really need to hear. All right. Well, that's coming up. To, well, it's coming up on Friday morning. I'm not sure when you're when you're uh, listening or watching this, but it's coming up on Friday morning uh, at uh, hughhewitt.com. In the universe, you can get the you can get the podcast. You can uh, you can get the, you can watch it live. Uh, universe h u g h n i v e r s e dot com. And uh, we've got to wrap things up, but I want to thank Dwayne for being with us, and uh, we'll talk to you again next week, sir. Sounds like a plan. See you guys. All right. Stand by for more from the Ed Morrissey Show. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. Joining me now is Robert Shibley of Fire.org, thefire.org, thefire.org, and uh, talking about free speech in colleges and universities and their top worst, their top ten worst colleges for free speech in 2022. Robert, welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. It's been a long time since we've talked on on, on Thames here. It has. Thank you for having me. Well. I wish that uh, we had cheery news to discuss about free speech. Seems like it's really not um, it, it, the the cultural shared consensus about free speech seems to be unraveling all over the place. I mean, on Spotify, where you've got '60s hippies that used to want to take it to the man, have now suddenly want to enforce it for the man. You've got it on uh, on you know network television. And now, and it's always been a problem on college campuses. I mean, this is something that you guys track at thefire.org constantly. But, um, I mean, does it seem to be to you that it's getting worse these days rather than better? Oh, yeah. I, I think, you know, culturally speaking, um, it's gotten worse. Um, and as, as social media has sort of come to dominate a lot of the culture, um, the what improvement i think and we were seeing at some point um on maybe a few years ago on campuses um has uh, been replaced sort of the fear in many ways of the sort of campus peer pressure has been uh replaced with fear of worldwide uh peer pressure and that you know the idea that all of uh world social media can land on some random 19 year old undergraduate if you say something uh that is uh politically supposedly wrong um, and the wrong person finds out about it, um, you can be, you know, persona non grata forever um, is terrifying uh, to students and, and faculty members and frankly, you know, just average Americans. And so um, it is a problem. You know, at the same time, we have been seeing uh, progress in terms of um, the actual policies that uh, universities have on the books. 
those have really been going in a good direction, but they don't mean much if uh, universities aren't willing to stick to them uh, or if students are willing to take advantage of them. Well, indeed. And again, Robert Shibley, of course, is the executive director of thefire.org. And uh, I, I have to say that I think that the institutions that should be defending free speech are particularly bad at doing so. I'm talking about media outlets. I'm talking about, you know, Spotify. There's the whole thing with Spotify, Neil Young, Joe Rogan. You can also say Whoopi Goldberg and ABC, because even though I think Whoopi Goldberg was an idiot and said idiotic and offensive things, she's paid to, I mean, I don't want to put it maybe quite as badly as this, but she's paid to offer idiotic uh, commentary. Well, you know, she's, she's on TV because uh, presumably people want to hear her opinions and they right. tune in for it. Same with Joe Rogan, you know, regardless of uh, what you think of the the folks he has on there. Um, I think a big part of uh, the attraction at this point uh, for some of the, the outliers in terms of, uh, you know, media um, who are willing to say things that most people won't say is that um, it gets more and more attractive the more you, the more difficult you make it uh, to see someone, the more attractive it is. And this is, you know, this, I mean, you learn this when you have kids, but you don't need to have kids to know this. If you tell somebody they can't do something, their first question is why? And if you don't have a good reason for them, a lot of times they're going to go and try and do it. And, you know, I, I think there is no good reason uh, for this cancel culture and censorship we have. And I can tell you also that it is a lot less popular um, actually with people across the political spectrum than most people believe. Um, I think that uh, data is going to continue to show that, but nobody, liberals, conservatives, independents, no, you know, nobody of uh, race. It's, it's not a something that has a majority, I think, support, um, according to some of our internal research and other polls you see out there. So, you know, everybody is sort of afraid of something that it really just takes some fortitude to stand up to. And you're right, universities, they're actually in a great position to stand up to this. I and mean, we're talking institutions in some cases that are likely to be around after the United States is done. I mean, is, will there not be a Harvard if there's no Massachusetts? Right. I, you know, they have more money than some countries. Um, same with Yale, same with Stanford. Um, so they are in a place where they could stand by their principles. And the fact that they're not is extremely discouraging and it, it sets a bad precedent for everybody else. Well, I think it's also, there's lots of different cultural things we can read into this in terms of the colleges. We're going to get to the colleges themselves, though, first, because at thefire.org, they publish this list, I believe, every year. Um, and mm -hmm. so for 2022, Robert has a list of the 10 worst colleges for free speech. We're going to get to each one of these, but I think there's one that's really in the news now, which is Georgetown uh, Law. Yeah. And they are, they've suspended Ilya Shapiro over you know, I, I, probably a poorly worded tweet. I think you can say it's a poorly worded tweet that really doesn't reflect what Ilya Shapiro was actually trying to say uh, in regards to the debate over whether or not Joe Biden was wise in uh, choosing to say that he was committing to uh, appointing a black woman to the Supreme Court. I actually happen to think that the, the controversy over Biden's choice is a little overblown because it's not the first time that presidents have made pledges to to do similar things. Reagan had a campaign pledge to appoint a woman at some point, uh, although it wasn't necessarily going to be his first pick. It turned out to be his first pick. Um, and, you know, George H.W. Bush chose Clarence Thomas to fill the slot that had been 
set aside, well, not set aside, set aside. Again, that's the wrong word, right? Um, I, I, I'm next on the cancel list, apparently. That that had been, you know, Thurgood Marshall's seat. And I think it was pretty clear that uh, Bush 41 really wanted to symbolically follow Thurgood Marshall with the second, uh, you know, black jurist on the Supreme Court. These are... These are, you know, it, these are policies or, or choices that both parties have made. I, I, I think they're open to criticism, just like any other policies are. I think what's what's not open to criticism, though, <laughs> should be beyond criticism, is the right to actually talk about these things because they're public policies. And even if you stumble over the, even if you stumble over the 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 text, I mean, the intent here was pretty clear. And yet, Georgetown Law has suspended Ilya Shapiro, uh, apparently is threatening to not follow through on his employment there, which I believe was just starting out. Is that right, Robert? He was supposed to start on February 1st, and they so he started his job suspended, administratively suspended, and um, is being investigated by an outside law firm uh, to see, I guess, if he's violated any policy. Georgetown has policies that uh, guarantee free speech. It's pretty clear you know, I'm not really sure what the investigation would involve. It's it's about this tweet um, or this you know, couple of tweets. Um, you know, like you said, I mean, Shapiro said, OK, that's not what I was trying to say. What I was trying to say is I think uh, Judge uh, Srinivasan is the best possible progressive choice. Um, and, you know, I think it logically follows what he's saying is that everybody else would be a less good choice. Um, you know, he acknowledged that he he put it in a in a bad way uh, that could be mischaracterized. But I, I confess that you know when I first read it, I and I think many people sort of fall you know filled in. I, I figured it was I actually figured it was just a a Twitter artifact of being too short and right. that he a lesser qualified uh, black woman. Um, now it's not Fire's job to judge what he meant. We know what he said he meant. Right. Um, and you know, that people can, people can disagree. I mean, obviously, you know, people can disagree on things like that and choose to interpret things the way they are. And we defend their right to do that, but it actually doesn't matter at all from the perspective of Georgetown. They made these promises and they are not keeping them. And by doing that, uh, they are doing terrible uh, damage to, I think their reputation in many ways, but also to the willingness of uh, people at Georgetown to speak out. I, I think it's very telling that uh, there's a letter in support of his right to, uh, to speak out on uh, this political issue, uh, authored by Eugene Bollock from UCLA, is a, a well-known First Amendment attorney. Yep. It's got, I think, over 160, I think, signers so far, and very few, if any, from Georgetown. I think there may be one. Um, and so it, it kind of shows you what the environment is there. Um, and people are not willing to cross this. And it's it's very disturbing. It's Georgetown is a very influential law school. It's the most influential one in our, our nation's capital. It has disproportionate influence. And to say that you can't discuss uh, the makeup of the Supreme Court is, is really, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an attorney. It's really alarming. I can tell you that. Right. And again, we're speaking with Robert Shibley, executive director of thefire.org. Robert, I, I agree with you. We don't want to get into the the qualitative judgment of what Ilya Shapiro wrote. And Fire tries to avoid that. Yeah, because right, we exactly. defend people from all, all sides. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that he should be um, excluded. And and that's right. true uh, for people all across uh, this top 10 list, which has liberals, conservatives, people, you know, issues that you can't really figure out 
uh, who's upset about it. And it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter when it comes to applying free speech principles. Right, exactly. And, and, and this is the reason why I brought up the Whoopi Goldberg thing, because I found what she had to say extremely offensive. If, if for no other, on no other basis, intellectually offensive, because it was really, really stupid. I don't think she should have been suspended. I don't think that there was, I mean, if, if, if people don't want to watch The View, they don't need to watch The View. I would actually really encourage them to, to not watch The View in droves. But, uh, but that beyond that, um, I don't like deplatforming. And, and yet when you take a look at the fire.org's list for 2022, you get the sense that deplatforming and silencing is really becoming a very common educational value. And not just at, you know, some oddball private school that, you know, that doesn't have any real implications. You mentioned Georgetown is extremely influential private school georgetown i believe is at least nominally a catholic school yeah um and um a, a lot of these are you give yale a a um a lifetime achievement award here by the way <laughs> not in a good way yeah. um yeah. but um but some of these are public universities some of these are private universities these are all well-known universities stanford leads off the list that's right uh stanford uh if you want to go from the other side uh this was about three weeks after uh, the uh, January 6th uh, Capitol riots, a, um, a, a student uh, sent around a satirical email listserv um, to the, the law students listserv uh, for a fake Federalist Society event, the Federalist Society being the sort of uh, conservative slash libertarian uh, organization of attorneys. Um, and it said they were having an event called the Originalist Case for inciting insurrection. Uh, it was scheduled for January 6th, which was three weeks in the past at that point, and said it would feature uh, Senator Josh Hawley and uh, Texas AG Ken, pa Ken Paxton, uh, suggesting they were going to do a coup. Um, and uh, Stanford actually went uh, after him and, and uh, opened an investigation and placed a hold on his diploma two weeks before he was supposed uh, to graduate. Uh, you know, this one, uh, was widely condemned. Uh, it was very obviously satirical. There was no way somebody could uh, have taken this seriously for more than a few seconds, which is often uh, how satire works. And in fact, the sort of the closer, uh, it, the more realistic it looks, sometimes the more effective it is. That's okay. Right. Um, but in this case, I, you know, I think it was, everybody thinks it was pretty obvious. We've seen the email. And uh, Stanford, nevertheless, opened this investigation. And, and that itself is part of the punishment. And we're seeing that you know, with Ilya Shapiro as well. But if, you know, if you know you're going to be investigated whenever somebody gets very upset about what you're saying and can make some kind of argument that you violated a policy and there's going to be a whole full-blown investigation, you will logically avoid uh, speaking out on those issues. That's called the chilling effect. It's, it's, it's both logical and obvious and also recognized by the court. Um, and yet, you know, Stanford fell right into that trap. Now they did... Uh, you know, reverse themselves, uh, you know, fairly quickly, although, you know, certainly not quickly enough. They should have just refused. But um, we also see, like you said, and I, you know, these suspensions and investigations, whether it's inside or outside uh, colleges, I, I think in, in many cases, they're used to make the process the punishment, right? right. So, you know, maybe you're not going to be fired. Maybe you won't lose your diploma. Maybe you are. 
Um, but you will think twice before you say anything again, because uh, every time there's an investigation that goes in your file and everybody assumes you did something wrong. And the next time, you know, you have even less protection if there is a next time. Yeah, that's a great point, uh, Robert. Uh, and, and I do remember the Federalist thing, too, because I, I like the Federalist Society. I think they're a fine sure. organization. Uh, me being a sort of a conservo slash somewhat libertarian guy, I, I, I follow what they do and I think they do good work. And at the time and uh, right up to right now, I was thinking, man, these guys really need to get a sense of humor. I mean, <laughs> they really, really need to get oh, a sense of humor. Students are not necessarily known for having a best sense of humor. Uh, they can be pretty... <laughs> Pretty serious folks, although it really depends on the law student. But at the same time, you know, and it's important to remember that, and, and Fire tries it for this, it, it's natural for people to complain when you say right. something that really aggravates them. And it's not people's responsibility not to complain or not to uh, demand these kinds of things, although it would be better for them not. To. I think it's better for a free society when we don't all jump to, I want that person shut up forever. So I think it is important, but it's not their legal responsibility to do it. It is Stanford's responsibility and Georgetown's responsibility and these other groups to say, I understand, but we're not going to do that because that's not the arrangement that we have as people who care um, about free speech. And I think it goes also to what you're saying about Spotify and ABC or whoever all else it is, even though, you know, those are private companies, Stanford, um, you know, they don't have the kind of promises of free expression that Stanford and Georgetown do and that sort of thing. They're private companies. And often people will say, what's your problem? It's not a First Amendment problem. It's a private company. They can do whatever they want. But that ignores the very obvious implications for our culture. That um, ignores the implications in many cases of the sort of scale um, of a lot of the decisions they make. This isn't, you know, yep. some random pizza joint. Uh, this is ABC or it's Spotify. I mean, you know, Facebook or Twitter, whatever it is. So what they do does have a real ramifications for our society. And so I do think they have, you know, a moral responsibility, at the very least, to think about um, what the ramifications of the decisions they make are. And, and I think too infrequent, that's not happening frequently enough. Right. I agree. And, and, and I think that you're exactly right about this, that there is a, there's a moral consensus, there's a cultural consensus that has to be uh, cultivated in order to prevent these types of encroachments occurring in other places. I mean, you, if, if you're making your money in the free speech venue, and there's no doubt that Spotify is making their money in the free speech uh, context, and that ABC makes its money in a free speech context, then, then you should be at least leaning towards <laughs> defending the cultural consensus around free speech uh, in order to in order to safeguard it so it, for no other reason so it doesn't erode out from under your own feet and i think that that's the that's that i mean that's certainly the the most craven <laughs> way to put it yeah, but, but i mean you would expect self-interest yeah to dictate yeah. that historically it has but um i think we're seeing sort of a, a breakdown of that incentive structure in some ways um, or maybe just a, a lack of realization, but you're right. I think it it aggravates people more when it is a media corporation or a university or some other sort of cultural a museum, some sort of cultural institution than it would if it were somebody making widgets, right? right. And I think that's you know, to, so to say that it's the same thing if you know somebody gets fired from being a shoemaker. It's bad. I think it's, you know, it's bad for that person in both cases. I don't, you know, but I think there it makes sense that people would see that differently and to pretend that they shouldn't because, you know, it's a private corporation or whatever. Um, 
you know, again, I'm not saying this is a legal thing, but from a cultural perspective, I think people don't understand it has ramifications when these folks do it that it doesn't in other circumstances. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to like blow through the whole list here because I want people okay. to go to the fire.org, but I, I have yeah. to talk about Emerson because I think this is free speech <laughs> in a completely different context. First off, stupider. Um, yeah. But, but, you know, what we see in some of these other instances is complaints about um, free speech restrictions and, and you know, speech codes that, that are imposed in a partisan manner on the Amer inside the American political context. Yeah. Emerson, Emerson's speech codes in this particular instance, which landed it on the top 10 this year, um, wasn't even in service to one side or the other side in this. It was on the side of the People's Republic of China. Tell us a little bit about this Emerson case and how ridiculous this got. We, we had a hard time believing this when this came across uh, what we saw, but uh, a chapter of Turning Point USA, which is a, a conservative uh, college uh, group, the National College Group, uh, was handing out stickers uh, that had a, a picture of the Among Us guy, which I'm, I'm sure we've all seen, uh, had a hammer and sickle on it and said, China kind of sus. And sus is, you know, what you say I hear from my kids uh, when you think somebody is suspicious in Among Us. And uh, so they're just passing out these stickers. They're, you know, maybe about as big as your hand. Um, and apparently um, somebody brought this to the attention administration and they condemned the stickers um, saying that they expressed anti-China hate, um, that it might have uh, violated their uh, bias policy and they launched an investigation. They also suspended um, the TPUSA chapter um, finding that they did not intend to target anyone other than China's government. But nevertheless, the bias-related behavior policy somehow covers the, the, the Chinese Communist Party um, itself, as opposed to you know, saying things that are actually racist towards Chinese people. Um, TPSA appealed, uh, nothing. Emerson does not care. Uh, then they started uh, hiding comments that were online uh, on their various, you know, uh, social media pages that were critical of them. And, you know, it's so ridiculous, but part of it, and I, I think it has some special relevance right now with uh, the Olympics uh, kicking off soon, um, is there, there are real concerns, I think, with this sort of, you know, globalization of a lot of things, uh, globalization of censorship and the sort of import of policies from repressive regimes has been a problem. One of the things that hit us at fire early on, and I'll try to be brief about it, hit fire early on is um, students from Hong Kong particularly, but also mainland China who um, ordinarily traveled to the United States to go to school here, they were having to do it remotely, but they, there were concerns that, because um, the Chinese government said that they might be monitoring Zoom and other online classes and seeing what was discussed. Right. So now what that does is it warps what that tells professors is if I don't want to get, you know, my student, I might have a student in Hong Kong. Am I going to discuss what's going on there and put them potentially in peril of being jailed? No. So all of a sudden the curriculum changes, too, because right. of the authoritarian government of communist China and, and, and other authoritarian governments as well, particularly in the Middle East. And so it is a real problem that I think has not yet been dealt with um, to an extent. And, and you have to wonder when you see things like this, 
whether or not, you know what kind of components are going on there. So I don't have any evidence of that, and I'm I'm not even suggesting that Emerson is in bed with the Chinese Communist Party. Um, but we have seen this in other areas, and criticism of China is, for whatever reason, particularly uh, perilous right now on college campuses, and it's something we need to be you know concerned and thinking about. Well, I think so too, and that's what's uh, so valuable about the Fire.org is because there are they not only are. Uh, highlighting these issues, but they're actually actively defending the, the students and um, organizations whose free speech rights are trampled. They're the ones that are um, helping out on the front line to, to restore those uh, freedoms and uh, to allow for free speech on college campuses. Uh, now, we've gone through three of the 10. So I think 30% is a pretty good number, Robert. But I do have to, I have to ask you, does the fire.org publish an annual list of um, the top 10 or at least the at least the handful of institutions of higher learning that might be doing it right on campus um we do have uh various ways that we tend to highlight uh universities so i believe we have um had a uh top 10 um best universities or at least uh, we suggest them but i think the best place to go um is our campus climate rankings we actually interview 37,000 uh students or we take a poll um statistically significant 159 colleges and we're going to grow that again in the coming year and you can see what students actually think about those universities for the, the first time um ever and we're only we've only done year two of it um and you can see which colleges are the best i can tell you the two best so far are claremont mckenna out in california and the university of chicago really the university of chicago good for them that's great we should we should make more mention of that because chicago gets a bad rap for lots of different reasons but uh university of chicago congratulations actually michelle obama's uh, alma mater if i if um they, they do and I, I think that's in both of those cases those, both of those colleges have overwhelmingly left-leaning students, uh, more so than most universities, but the leadership there has set forth a principle that they are not going to um, censor on the demand of students or, or professors or any of the outside. And they've actually made um, you know, that clear to students and, and students tend to support it and they believe that they have uh, those protections. And that, and that also shows one last thing, which is that the leadership really counts, the decisions they make really counts. And that, you know, a lot of people are worried, and I think with some justification about, you know, the bias, whether it be faculty, professors, administrators, uh, students in academia, but you can have, you know, a, a, a university that is very left-leaning or very right-leaning, and that still respects the the minorities' rights to speak their views if you want to do it. And what we need is more colleges and more institutions that want to do that. And you know how you can help do that? You can go to thefire.org, take a look at their resources to keep involved, take a look at how you can get involved. It's another head, header there. You can uh, join the FIRE faculty network. You can um, join the FIRE's high school educator network. You can donate to FIRE, by the way. That, uh, but there's all sorts of different ways that you can be involved in the defense of free speech on campuses around the country both high school and college and the fire.org is how you do that robert shibley executive uh, executive director of the fire.org thanks so much for being with us today thanks for having me ed stay tuned for more from the ed morrissey show we'll be right back This is Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com for Town Hall. 
The era of big mandates is over, NBC News declared, after six blue states acted to reverse indoor mask mandates over the past few days. Starting in New Jersey, Democratic governors in five states rolled back COVID-19 mandates after facing voter anger and parental fury over requirements that never had a firm basis in science in the first place. With the Omicron wave of cases fast receding, it appeared for a brief moment that the White House got the message. Instead, the CDC used a hastily arranged press briefing on Wednesday to announce that their guidance wouldn't change at all. Despite the hint from NBC and the clear message from voters across the political spectrum, the Biden White House wants to cling to mandates rather than shift to an endemic posture on COVID-19. A reporter asked Jen Psaki whether the CDC risked becoming irrelevant to Americans as states begin ignoring their outdated guidance. She essentially just doubled down. The Biden administration has proven its irrelevance. The administration will get left behind. Americans are done with big mandates. I'm Ed Morrissey. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. I am happy to introduce one of my friends, uh, both in and out of politics, uh, Myra Khan Adams, who has got a, uh, it's not a new book out. It's been out for a few months, but it's a terribly interesting project for Myra, who's really been doing some great work in the faith sphere. And this is called Bible Study for Those Who Don't Read the Bible, which is, Myra itself, a somewhat interesting concept. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Myra, uh, you know, it's always a delight talking with you. And it's always so much fun having these conversations. And I, I mean, I don't know that people are going to say, oh, Bible study. How much fun can you get out of Bible study? Well, if, if you're asking that question, you simply don't know Myra Khan Adams. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> am I correct about this? This is, this is going that to be enjoyable as well as informative, right? Enter entertaining. We're all into, the Bible is entertainment. Um, <laughs> You know, one thing that that really you know needs to be said is the title um, says it all. <laughs> if you don't read the Bible and you don't know anything about the Bible, even though it is the world's greatest book, most best-selling book, the book that changed history forever and continues to change history and change the world forever, it's intimidating. It's an extremely intimidating book, uh, and people who never read it, never picked it up, don't know anything about the Bible, have you know, no faith, as we call the unchurched, um, you know, are the last people to want to pick up the Bible. They don't even know where to begin. So um, just the title makes it kind of user-friendly. And the way that the book is constructed, uh, first of all, it was never, it never started out to be a book, <laughs> which right. is why it's, it's kind of loopy in the sense that you can pick this book up anywhere. And pick any page, just go pick it up and you can start reading a chapter that has nothing to do with the chapter before or the chapter afterwards. Um, because the book is a, is a compilation of my SundayTownHall.com Bible study that started weekly in February of 2020. And luckily uh, readers liked it and, and started reading it and Town Hall continued it. Uh, because as we know, Town Hall is a political, secular, conservative website right. that is not at all faith-driven uh, in its content. Um, and it's the last place you'd really expect to see a weekly Bible study. Um, but they took a chance and uh, it basically uh, has, you know, has caught an audience because surprise, conservatives oftentimes have faith. 
And those that don't have faith, you know, may be attracted um, by the titles of the different weekly series. But the, the actual book is Bible study for those that read the Bible. But the, but the weekly series is called A Quick, Compelling Bible Study. Uh, in fact, the first two volumes that I wrote, I call them volumes, the different studies, were actually called Bible study for those who don't read the Bible. But um, then I, I got into quick compelling uh, because it just gives me an easier way to then introduce the topic um, of the week. So um, that's that part of it. Yeah, it, I mean, you're right about this, uh, about the Bible being a daunting book for those who aren't, haven't been familiar with it, didn't grow up in it. Um and I, I want you to, I know you got a copy of your book there. You got to hold up a copy of your book just to show how people, how welcoming and friendly it is. I, I'm going to let you speak here. Keep holding it up because right now the camera's on me, but we're going to go ahead and flip the camera back to you as you talk okay. about how friendly this is, how accessible this actually is. So it's not, and it gets in the light a little better. And let me know when it's on. Oh yeah, you're there. Okay. So you notice uh, what's on top here. I have a, um, a Jewish star with a cross in it. And that alone can make heads explode. Um, but I am um, a Messianic Jew. I was born and raised Jewish. So, and I, I um, came to Christ in 1975 when I was in college. I'm dating myself. Um, but anyway, uh, I write the Bible studies from the perspective of being a Messianic Jew. Also, my journey, my faith journey as a, um, a Protestant and then an Evangelical, and now I, I attend Catholic Church. So I, I really, I, I call myself a no-labels lover of Christ. And the Bible study is actually um, reflecting all my different um, ways that uh, I look at the Lord, but I, I try not to have labels because I, I don't like labels. I, honestly, I don't like denominations. I, I just think the Bible is the Word of God, and, and it shouldn't be through the lens of your denomination. It, it is what it is, and dom denominations should not matter. So I write the, the Bible study from that perspective. I just write about the Word of the Lord and what, it's, what we're supposed to learn from it. And um, that's it. So is my shameless self-promotion part over now? Oh, no, not at all. We're going to continue <laughs> shameless self-promotion. Glue it to my head? <laughs> we are going to continue the Myra Khan Adams shameless promotion because it's not just self-promotion. I'm promoting this as well. Right, uh, you know, right. this is uh, Bible studies are, are always tricky. And I'm glad that you, you talk about the ecumenism that you've put into this mm -hmm. because, you know, I write. Sunday Reflections, and I've been doing this now for about seven, eight years, I guess, um, at Hot Air. And I do try to be careful about being as ecumenical as I possibly can, because I'm, I, I, I know that our reader base is not strictly Catholic. I'm Catholic, so obviously, I, you know, and I have a Catholic pers perspective on this, Catholic theological perspective on these, but I try to be very careful to be as inclusive as possible. And it's very clear that that's exactly what you want to do with Bible study for those who don't read the Bible. Yes, or um, the, the main thing is that you want to diminish uh, the amount of hate mail that you're going to get. Um, yeah, the amount of hate, <laughs> good hate luck with comments. that. Yeah, good I luck know. With exactly. that. <laughs> okay, can I um, can I take this down now so I don't have to sit here the whole time and hold? Yes, it? you can I'll, take I'll that hold down. Hold it again at the end. Uh, I do want to note that Harry Hargrave, who's the president of the Museum of the Bible in Washington D.C., uh, wrote the forward to it. So um, that was um, very nice of him. It was okay, putting, putting this down now and um, okay now I can resume my uh, position straight on here straight on with Myra Khan Adams <laughs> that's gonna be the name of her new her new podcast straight on with Myra Khan Adams all right Myra you know um, 
there's a lot of Bible studies in the marketplace, obviously, and some of them are, are very broad. Some of them are very are very focused on certain aspects of the Bible. There's a series of these. You've been doing this for a long time at Town Hall, um, as you say. Two and years. That's, two years. Yeah, for yeah. two years, yeah. And, um, and, and as you say, this is, you know, this is a, a compilation of some of the things that you're doing there. I know that you're continuing to do these. So even though, even though this book was published in September of last year, you're continuing to do the quick and compelling Bible studies at Town Hall. Mm -hmm. Every Sunday. Uh, in fact, uh, in two weeks, it will be volume 100, my 100th study, uh, which is shocking uh, because I didn't think I'd go beyond two. Um, and the other thing that's interesting, it was readers. It was actually town hall readers that would send me emails and write comments and say, this should be a book. You know, we really enjoy your studies. You should make this into a book. And um, of course, I ignored that for months. And then, um, it, then I just got too many of them. So I decided, okay, I guess it's a sign. I'm supposed to be putting this in a book. And uh, I did. I actually went through uh, Zulon which is a self-publishing company connected that's owned by Salem, which owns Town Hall, right? which owns Hot Air. Um, and they're a- uh, <laughs> It's the empire. It's, it's a the empire. It's a hey, Salem it's a empire. <laughs> it's a Christian oriented empire. It is, yeah, which this is, is great. actually yeah. very good. So um, anyway, so in fact, the second book um, will be coming out later this year because I'm going to take um, volumes 57 through 100 and it will be part two. The, this book, um, time for, hold it up one more time. This book covers volumes one through 56. Um, and then the next book will be um, volumes 57 through 100. And in two weeks, as I said, 100, the 100 of the study will be, um, will be written. So, um, but anyway, the main, you know, the main thing is that I try to make it a user-friendly Bible study. And also I try to connect the Old Testament and the New Testament and bring out some of the colorful characters in the Bible, some of the prayers that, um, that perhaps will help someone who happens to stumble upon it at town hall on a given Sunday and, and reads it and said, wow, you know, I'm really touched by what was written and, and encourage them to, to study more. I mean, that's really my overall objective is to encourage people to study the Bible more and give them a foothold right into the Bible. Yeah. And just, you know, to, I mean, of course, town hall is a, a, a politics site. Salem does actually both conservative politics as well as, uh, you know, Christian broadcasting. They're primarily a Christian broadcaster. In fact, yes, they are. Um, politics really isn't entering into this, right? I mean, this is, I, I, I think that you and I sort of have the same approach to this is that the Bible's the Bible. And, and when we're, when we're discussing the Bible and doing Bible, you know, um, doing Bible analysis and, and, and Bible study, we're, we're outside of the politics realm. And, um, I think people are going to be very comfortable coming to Bible study for those who don't read the Bible, um, regardless of their political orientation. Yes, I, I, I really <laughs> try to just write about the word of God and um, not talk about the politics of the day, even though the site that I'm on, townhall.com, is, is all about politics right. all the time. Um, but I maybe I'm just a little peaceful oasis on Sundays. And ironically, um, if anyone, your readers read Town Hall, um, they notice that on the left-hand corner is all the op-eds. So my piece runs as one of the op-eds. So of course it runs, um, you know, between, you know, some very 
political op-eds. Um, so I, I really do like to think I, I'm a peaceful oasis and a break from all the noise and all the red meat and all the polarization that uh, that goes on throughout our you know, society right now. And, um, you know, that goes on on all political sites, no matter whether they're, you know, right leading or, or left leading, the heat is just on. And right. uh, so my weekly study just tries to just put that all aside. You know, I, 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 I'm wondering if you um, see this, you talk about a peaceful oasis, by the way, I, you know, Myra, I've known you for years. You're always a peaceful oasis. I just want to <laughs> Just want to throw that in there. Um, <laughs> not all the time. This is that shameless self promotion. Now it's turning into a whole love fest going on here. But, uh, uh, but, but I mean, more seriously, I, I'm not sure how you approach this. I approach this in terms of um, in terms of what I do, you know. And I'm not going to put those in a book. They're they're just on the on the hot air site. But um, I, I approached it as almost a way to honor the Sabbath, the Christian version of the Sabbath, um, by focusing any work that I'm doing most weekends on just the word of God and that's it. I mean, I try not to get into politics on Twitter. I try not. This is something I learned from Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager is the one who emphasized the need for people to honor the Sabbath, to follow the Ten Commandments, regardless of which day you recognize being the Sabbath, that it's imperative for people of faith um, in Judeo-Christian faith of all denominations to right. honor the Sabbath. And I, I mean, I thought very deeply about that. And I, I realized that I really did need to do that even as imperfectly as I did. And I'm wondering if that's, if that was informing some of your decisions to, to do this on Sundays, and even though it's in the political mix, which, which, you know, my stuff is at hot air too. Um, it's all mixed up with all, all the rest of the stuff there on Sundays is that it's at least your personal way of really just keeping the Sabbath holy to whatever extent that you can do. You know, I wish that's what happened, but that's <laughs> not what happened. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, it was a, a high-ranking Salem executive that suggested that I write a faith piece on Sunday at Town Hall uh, because I'd written a piece um, about the Shroud of Turin, and that was very popular. And then uh, he said, hey, you should write a faith piece on Town Hall um, so, on Sundays. So that's what happened. <laughs> This is really something that just came about. The hand of God is definitely on this. Right. Um, and thanks to the readers at, um, at Town Hall as well. But one thing about the Sabbath that I think is interesting, um, I'm old enough, and perhaps you are old enough too, that uh, when I grew up, I grew up in Boston. I grew, grew up in a suburb of Boston. Um, and on Sundays, they used to have what was called blue laws. Oh, yeah. And literally nothing was open. I mean, except for maybe, you know, a convenience store here and there, but there even weren't that many of those, uh, maybe a gas station. But for the most part, nothing was open. You did not go shopping. There was no shopping malls open. There was nothing open. There weren't even that many shopping malls at that time. Um, but anyway, that the honoring the Sabbath was just part of our society in, in, in our culture uh, for decades and decades. Um, and ultimately, what ended up happening is I, um, I, I guess this happened when I was in high school or um, I forget exactly the year it happened, but I remember that all of a sudden uh, everything started getting open on Sunday. And the reason I, I heard was because New Hampshire, which of course borders uh, Massachusetts, um, people from Massachusetts who wanted to go shopping on Sunday would go to New Hampshire. So uh, Massachusetts was losing out of 
tax revenue, tax sales tax revenue. Right. So they decided um, to start opening up stores on Sunday. Um, that's what happened. <laughs> Isn't that funny? That but, is, um, yeah. And yeah, and then it just, you know, now it's like probably people who are a lot younger than you and I can't even imagine stores being closed on Sunday. Except they think about something like this. Chick-fil-A is closed yes. on Sunday. And, you know, they, they honor, you know, they honor the Sabbath and they certainly do. they, they lose millions of dollars in business, but they don't care because they're going to honor the Sabbath. So, I mean, that's kind of a throwback, you know, to the way it always was. It, it is, and, you know, and it's funny because it, it wasn't that way in California when I was growing up. I, I don't recall there being any sort of uh, particular store closures or, or blue laws. California, I think, really didn't have that. But I moved to Minnesota, you know, and I was 34 years old when I moved to Minnesota, and they still had blue laws. In fact, to this day, you can't open a car dealership on a Sunday. Um, oh, wow. It's um, and and among the biggest proponents of that are car dealerships. <laughs> As it turns out, they don't want to be open on Sundays because right. a it's going to cost them more to be open on Sundays, but also, and this is just an aside. I mean, this is like trivia now. Um, they, they believe they sell a lot of cars on Sundays by just having people go to the lots knowing they won't be bothered and wandering the lots and finding cars they like. And so uh, at least that was what, what it was before, you know, um, you know, I've moved, I moved out of Minnesota last year. Mm-hmm. Um, to Texas. To Texas. The great state of. The great state of Texas, indeed. You know, uh, I almost want to do the deep in the heart of Texas. Um but um, and I don't know what the blue law situation is or was down here, but it was a big deal um, in in Minnesota. You couldn't do alcohol sales on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Uh, liquor stores up until very recently, liquor stores had to be closed on Sundays. Um, so I mean, Minnesota actually, as progressive as that state is, those blue laws were around um, while I was mm-hmm. living there. So yeah. All right. So getting back to the book, Bible study for those who don't read the Bible. Um, We've got a couple minutes left. Is this structure in this book sort of like a weekly thing too, as as it was in the columns? Is something you work through week by week, or you can just kind of go at your own pace? Um, um, how how does how did you frame this in the book? I just basically put the, the columns in there, and I give the date that it was posted, and um, they just follow each other. You know, volume one through fifty six. Um, but the topics are not at all related. They're they're on occasion. I will do a topic that demands um, more than a thousand words. And of course, that's, you know, that's also something that you need to consider. I mean, these Bible studies, because they are on town hall, I mean, I really can't have them go over a thousand words. I maybe a little bit here and there, but for the most part, it's about a thousand words. Uh, So, you know, they do have to be short. And um, sometimes I will have a topic like, um, you know, what the Bible says about water. Okay, but I'll do a Old Test- what the Old Testament says about water and what the New Testament says about water, and it will be, you know, one Sunday after another. But for the most part, um, each one of them is just independent, and even those are independent because I, I try to then relate it back to the one the week before. Um, but they're all independent. I mean, you can just pick them up anywhere. And I've had actually a lot of readers say to me how much they really like that. I mean, they just kind of thumb through it and pick up whatever topic And it looks like we might have lost Myra. Myra, are you back with us? We might have lost Myra there. Anyway, the, the book is 
Bible study for those who don't read the Bible. We'll, go, we'll be back later with Myra on a completely different topic, so stay tuned. We're, uh, we're going to be doing a couple topics with Myra. Bible study. The oh, there we go. There you go. You're back. You, you froze up there for just a moment, Myra. Oh. I was just about ready to wrap up, and uh, but I'll, I'll let you get in the last word here, and then we'll wrap this uh, segment up. Okay. It says my, I just got a, note, a, a line across that says my connection is unstable. Okay. At least I'm not unstable. You're not unstable. My, my connection's <laughs> unstable. Um, but anyway, the point is anyone can pick up this book at any topic. Um, and it's not at all connected because I, I felt like I, I get like called. I mean, I literally have these ding dings and I write them in the, in the, in the different columns. I just feel like the Lord's calling me to write about a certain topic. And that's the topic I write about. Uh, and that's the way it is. So it's not at all connected. This is not your typical Bible study. Um, and I think that's why, you know, it, it became popular in town hall and why the, the book has started to be popular uh, because people just maybe are, again, intimidated uh, if they've never read the Bible before. So this is definitely a way that um, just welcomes everybody and you can know nothing because I, I write from the perspective of me as a kid. I did not know anything. I thought Palm Sunday was about glorifying palm trees and good day was a Friday in spring that was good. And I'm not exaggerating. I knew nothing. I grew up in a house without a Bible. I literally knew nothing. Uh, and was that really until I was about 21. <laughs> I started getting into it more uh, when I believe I was called to be a Christian. But other than that, I knew nothing. So I write this really, for, as I say, for young Myra. <laughs> There so you go. there you go. All right. Bible study for those who don't read the Bible. You can get it on Amazon.com. You can get it probably on Barnes and Noble. You can get it uh, wherever fine books are sold. Myra Khan Adams. Thanks for being with us. Uh, we will come back on another topic very soon. 